Grace and peace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This summer, one of my um, research projects uh, has been to binge watch the very popular HBO television series Game of Thrones. Not just to binge watch the latest season, one season, but all six seasons at 10 episodes apiece. Crazy. If you were to ask me how long it took me to write this sermon, I think I'd have to tell you about 70 hours. (laughs) Uh, Game of Thrones is based on the best-selling book uh, series by George R.R. Martin called A Song of Ice and Fire. Um, It's a popular book series and a popular television series. A ministry friend once described it to me as the second greatest story ever told. It's set in a fictional time and place in something like the high Middle Ages, in a time of castles and kings and knights and dragons. Uh, Think King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. And one of the major themes in the story has to do with heirs, bloodlines, and family dynasties. Birthright and birth order play an important role in their society. It distinguishes the highborn from the lowborn, rightful heirs to bastards, and traces the all-important bloodlines of the kings. The novels and the TV series focus on how the children, these heirs of once great and powerful leaders, will grow and lead and determine who will possess the iron throne and reign as king or queen. Watching Game of Thrones and following this thread across the six seasons has shed new light for me on the story of Abram and Sarai, later called Abraham and Sarah, uh, that we hear about in our readings for today. When God first calls Abram and his wife Sarai, Sarai in Genesis 12, just a few chapters prior to our reading for this morning, they have no children. They're already quite old and well beyond their childbearing years. But God calls them to leave their homeland of Ur to the, go to the promised land of Palestine. God promises them that they will have descendants, that God will make of them a great nation, barren though they are. I guess that until spending so much time on Games of Thrones, I never really wondered why it was such a big deal that Abraham and Sarah needed to have descendants, why they needed to have a son. I think I maybe just took for granted that that's what had to be. And also, after all, couldn't God have just called somebody else? Why do they need descendants? Well, they needed an heir, a child, a son, not only to love, um, but also to pass on the blessings of what scholars tell us is a not inconsiderable amount of wealth and power that Abraham had accumulated from his time in the promised land. Um, But they also needed descendants to pass on God's promises, to pass on the faith. The family name, the house of Abraham and Sarah, the promise, the dynasty has to continue, first so that God makes good on God's promise to them, but second so that this promise could live on into future generations. But my, it took a long time. Just to quickly recap, so God calls Abram and Sarai in chapter 12 in Genesis, and they go from Ur, their homeland, to the promised land, taking with them Uh, Abraham's nephew Lot. But first they have to detour into Egypt because there was a famine in the promised land. And in Egypt, they had to pretend to be brother and sister so they don't get killed. 
Then they come back to the promised land, and their nephew Lot has become a huge pain in the butt. And so they agreed to part ways with one another, except that Lot goes and gets himself in trouble and taken prisoner, and Abraham has to go and rescue Lot. And still somehow they wanted to have children. But that brings us to our reading today and God's big covenant promise to Abraham. Abraham complains that after all of these things, he still has no children to be his heir. The only person around to inherit his his legacy is Eliezer of Damascus, whose scholars uh, speculate might have been his lowly chief steward. So God takes Abraham outside, and they look up at the stars in the sky, and God says to him, that's how many descendants you'll have, as many as the stars in the sky. That's a huge promise. And an even bigger promise than Abraham realized. Now, I was just thinking about this because, you know, there are only so many stars that we can see in the sky at night, especially in the city with all the light pollution from buildings and streetlights and so on. But then when you get outside of the city, you can see so many more stars like we can at our cottage. You can even see the satellites flying across the sky. And Abraham, back in his day, long before electricity, would have seen so many stars than we do. But even then, there were far more than you could see with the naked eye. So as Abraham looks up, he sees just so many stars. But God, of course, sees them all, billions and billions of stars. And so God is making Abraham a promise that is bigger than Abraham could possibly imagine. And in an ever-expanding universe, it's a promise that gets bigger over time. And so there's this huge, big, dramatic promise. But after that, there's still no heir, no immaculate conception, no child, no nothing. And so at Sarah's suggestion, Abraham has a child with Sarah's servant Hagar, a boy named Ishmael. But that doesn't work out so well, and Sarah is jealous and tells Abraham to send them away. Then God reiterates the promise. But then Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed, and Lot's wife turns the salt. And then finally, finally, finally in chapter 21, after nine chapters of so much waiting and wondering and walking and warring, the heir Isaac is born. Isaac, which means laughter. God does have a sense of humor. The whole saga doesn't end there. Then God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac in order to test Abraham's faith and obedience. And then God calls it off at the very last minute. And then because Isaac also needs to be married and have children to continue the line, and Isaac apparently wasn't very socially adept, Abraham had to go and find Isaac a wife, Rebekah, who it turned out was barren. But finally she has twins, Esau and Jacob, and finally Jacob becomes the father of Israel. I mean, this whole sordid saga puts Game of Thrones with its twists and turns and its family housing, houses and competing heirs to shame. I could binge watch this story. And looking at the story again through this lens, give Abraham and Sarah's long suffering, waiting for God's promise to be fulfilled, a newfound sense of urgency and even desperation. But it also makes their faithfulness all the more admirable. They didn't just hear the promise one day and receive a son the next. It took fully 25 years and a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, and absolutely nothing about it was easy. The author of Hebrews praises them as the quintessential models of faith for this. It says, by faith, 
Abraham and Sarah obeyed when they were called out for a place that they were to receive as an inheritance, and they set out not knowing where they were going. By faith, they stayed for a long time in the land that they had been promised, as in a foreign land. By faith, they received power of procreation, even though he was too old and Sarah herself was barren, because they considered God faithful who had promised. Therefore, from two people as good as dead, it says, descendants were born, as many as the stars in heaven and as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. And we, we here are among those descendants, for Abraham and Sarah are considered to be the father and mother of three faiths, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. We are among those billions and billions of stars in the night sky that God once showed Abraham so long ago. But it took a while. It took a lot of waiting. It took a lot of heartache took mistakes and wrong turns, took getting into and back out of trouble, took unexpected graces and undeserved blessings. It took staying with it when all the evidence to the contrary seemed to indicate that this promise was not going to happen. They trusted God when God called. They believed in the promise even when it took so long to be fulfilled. This is why Abraham and Sarah are such enduring figures, such paragons of faith. They give us encouragement in our own waiting in our own long-suffering. And I wonder, as I ask the kids, I wonder if you are familiar with waiting, with this kind of waiting. Have you waited a long time for a promise to be fulfilled? Have you waited a long time to finally get an answer? Have you waited for a loved one to get better or to return your calls? Have you waited until the next step in your journey became clear? Waited for justice or redemption? Waited to be forgiven or to forgive? You waited for peace or waited for healing? Have you spent time in what Dr. Seuss called the waiting place? Are you waiting for someone or something or sometime right now? Waiting. Waiting can wear on us. Waiting can haunt us. It's not something that we're accustomed to or that we're very good at. That's in part because in today's culture, on-demand is not just a way to watch a TV or a movie. It's become a way of life. We get breaking news and our friends' latest updates and these digital devices in our pockets. We can Google search and get answers in nanoseconds. We don't have to wait for fruits and vegetables to be in season because they're shipped to us from all over the world. We can have them anytime. And yet waiting is still a part of life, and often waiting has to do with the most important things in life because as we know, the important things of life, the big things in life, can take a while to manifest. The waiting place is where we learn to hold fast to faith, where we practice and deepen our faith, faith in God, faith in each other, faith in the goodness of the world despite all evidence to the contrary. In the waiting place, we are forced to trust in something and someone else beyond our own smarts and our own abilities. We are moved to listen to God and to others and our true hearts. In our reading from Hebrews, we are given one of The classic definitions of faith from the Bible, it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The assurance of things hoped for, 
faith in the future, that the future is in God's hand, and the conviction of things not seen, faith that in the present moment as we wait, God is with us even as we continue to wait and watch and walk. It's not faith in ourselves, but faith in the faithfulness of God. That's what Abraham and Sarah had, a trust that God was good, a trust that God was with them, a trust that God would keep God's word. It gave them and gives us strength to persevere, knowing that God is with us, knowing that the day will come when the promise is fulfilled, when the answer comes, when forgiveness reigns, where peace is realized all in God's time. Faith, the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, gives us hope that through waiting, through the trials of life, that God is good and God has not left us alone. And so whatever it is that you are waiting for this morning, your ancestors Sarah and Abraham, first of their name, first in our line, waited 25 years for an heir. And now some 4,000 years later, you are the living proof, the living promise that God is faithful, that God keeps God's promises, and God never leaves us alone. Whatever you are waiting for, have faith, faith in the faithfulness of God. Amen.